Okay, yeah, let us pray. Thank you, Father, for always being with me no matter where I find myself in life. Through your word and sacrament, strengthen my faith in Jesus and make me confident of your help. Amen. Amen. So that's the, a prayer of summary, actually, of like verses 7 through 15 of chapter 5. So. They tried to make that resource not just knowledge, but also devotional, right? So teach you how to pray. All right, where did we leave off? Um, my memory says roughly where? Chapter 5? Is that where, or verse 5? Or did we get through verse 6? We did, yeah. yeah. So we read up through, and this one shall be peace, right? Uh, they shall abide, for he shall be great. Chapter 5, verse 4. To the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. Is that right? No, oh, I didn't type. Did I type this right? Oh, yeah. Every Bible has a different break. That was one of the things we discovered, right? And the verses end differently. So that's the end of verse, verse 3 in this one. Uh, I'm not sure why the chapter and verse markings are so different in these Bibles. I've got New King James. This one's not New King James. It's a different one yet. And yours probably has a different one. All right. Well, whatever. Let's pick up somewhere. <laughs> uh, let's start with the Assyrian stuff, right? So let's reread that. I guess in this Bible, it's 538. I don't know what it is on yours. Where does Assyria start? Assyria starts in the middle of verse 5. Middle of verse 5. All right. Okay. That's good. Go right there. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod as its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. All right, that's good. We're going to do that. these guys back If you need a study sheet, we'll have that. We'll look at that in a moment. All right, yes, now I remember where we were, because uh, we did talk a little bit about the shepherds, right? Because that was also that also is in the preceding verses where we're talking about kind of the counterintuitive nature of of this of this conquest of or this reclaiming of God's people is that it's going to come not by power of sword and of might but it's going to come we talked at length about coming through weakness I think right yeah and coming through through shepherds who um, who lead rather than overcome is it I think oh yes. My mother reminded me, because she listened to Bible study, uh, <laughs> that I gave the picture of, of you know, trying to train the sheep and dragging them along. And it, it eventually does actually work. She reminded me of that. But, but it's not the best way to lead a sheep, is, is to just kind of drag them along. Actually, uh, now that I think about it, uh, what we actually train them to do is walk alongside you. So they would, they would kind of just follow the gentle leading rather than having to pull them 
but you would not get you know the showman award at the fair. If that's what you're <laughs> but rather they would they would walk alongside you um, and stop when you stop and walk when you walk. And that that's really more the picture of what God is accomplishing here. Because um, rem- remember, this is uh, the ruler that's going to come out of Bethlehem, the house of bread, out of Ephrathah, which is the house of, we talked about, uh, of Rachel, right? Um, and that he was everlasting, he's from beginning without end, and that this kind of kingdom is not a kingdom like this world, right? Which Jesus talks about. My kingdom is not of this world, as he tells Pilate. Uh, and so what that means is this kingdom is also not governed by the ways of the kings of this world. Uh, think about the, the, you know, when did Israel, Israel meaning both what ends up being northern kingdom, southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, but back when they were united, um, did they have a king? Like in the wilderness? No. And they didn't have a king when they first came into the promised land either. Um, they, they begged for one. And do you remember why? So this is an interesting thing, isn't it? That God was governing them in a very different way than the ways of this world. Um, he was actually doing it through prophets and fathers, is how he was doing it. And in a way, the, pro- the prophet, in case of Moses, later Joshua, he, he is um, the, you know, like the head father, if you like, the, pa- the patriarch of the family. But it's a family, um, and it's it's a family that lives together around uh, the mercy of God given to them in, in the temple, or not the temple, the tabernacle, and the sacrifices, and in the prayers there at the tabernacle, which is not the way the world lives. And actually, it seems counterintuitive, because what, how would you expect you'd need to govern a, a group of people through power and might and manipulation and money games, or through, like, I don't know, holding out, you know, holding out, uh, you know, income for government employees until you can get your, your way and have your, have your $5.7 billion um, project, you know, which in the broad scheme of things isn't that much money, actually, because I think the total budget is like $4.4 trillion. So, so a five, you know, almost $6 billion wall is not probably all that ter- worth getting hung up on. But, but that's, how we, that's how we govern ourselves now is with power games and struggles and you know, I want my way and you want your way. And, uh, and then we have to compromise if we're going to get any way, right? If we're going to live at all. And God's kingdom, um, at least even on this earth, actually, under Moses and Joshua, it was very different. It was very different. It didn't, it, there were rules. There were obligations. There were Levitical laws for the state, um, not just for the church and for the family. But they also, you know, laws about like sojourners, for example, which you hear trotted out now to talk about all the people that are down at the border that want to come in, um, which were unique laws to the people of Israel. They're not universal laws for all of God's people forever. But, but also wonderful pictures of things like debt forgiveness, right, with the year of Jubilee. You've heard about that? So if you're in an obligation to um, repay a loan or a debt, and uh, uh, you, would, you would serve under someone, <laughs> a neighbor, for seven years, that would be your employee, basically. You'd be uh, obligated to continue to work for them. And then the seventh year is the year of Jubilee when, it, when the remaining debt is forgiven. So uh, some interesting things that God did give, but not, but not, not really this kind of power, power struggle, this manipulation, manipulation. And only because, as whoever said it, because they asked. They wanted to be like their neighbors. Ron, you said that. They wanted, they wanted to look like their neighbors, which is unfortunate. I think it's interesting that 
God indicated to them that he didn't want them to call Cain. Yeah. But they insisted. Yeah. And, and God let them. And yeah. then he said, um, you're going to wish you hadn't. <laughs> you know, it's... <laughs> It's true. It's true. Yeah, it doesn't go well for them. Saul's not all that great of a king. Um, David's uh, an all right king, I guess, all things considered, pretty big kingdom and whatnot, at least in terms of earthly glory. Um, not always the most faithful guy in the world. And uh, Solomon, not particularly faithful either. Um, maybe uh, I think the, the writer of the Chronicles actually probably indicates he died outside of faith, even, which is pretty incredible to think. Oh, he's an author. You know, how many books in the Bible? And, and yet he died without faith, maybe. Um, and then, of course, their sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, his sons, um, then split the kingdom, and then it just keeps going downhill with a few moments of, of um, what do you want to say? Some more positive moments. If you did follow the prayer guide for this week, we read about Hezekiah, for example. Uh, Hezekiah and Judah, right? He's king of Judah, who... Tore down the, the tore down the high places and the and the Asherah poles and burned the idols and um, and then the word of God was once again read in the in the uh, temple that sort of thing. So there are moments where things kind of where the king goes well, where a kingdom goes well. But the emphasis would be that when the only time where it goes well is when the king is faithful. The rest of the time, the kings act just like every other king. And sometimes even worse than every other king. Think of like, um, you know, Ahab and Jezebel, right? <laughs> Where they're pretty terrible. So, all right. So what are we talking about? We're talking about kingdoms. That's right. And so this is a different sort of kingdom. That's why shepherds actually can, will work out all right. Um, because he doesn't rule his people through power and might, but he rules them over uh, through weakness and through um, actually even weak leaders, we would say, at least weak in the eyes of the world but faithful to God, which is the emphasis. Uh, so let's see, where do we go? Assyria comes into our land, and when he treads in our palaces, uh, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princely men. And I think we talked about that a little bit, right? It's maybe some significance to those numbers, but it's, hmm, yeah, it's kind of a stretch. Right? I know seven being God's number, generally speaking, eight being kind of the number of completion, or seven too, but eight being the number of like a new kingdom or new, new life. But um, I think this, this statement is probably a little bit obscure to me, unless you see something there that I don't see. <laughs> yeah. And they shall lay waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod, um, which is an interesting expression, right? Uh, Nimrod referring back to Genesis 10, which had to do with um, was the son of Cush, who was a mighty one on the earth, a mighty hunter. Um, this, you know, Nimrod here is kind of like, what would be our analogy? You know, somebody who's powerful and mighty. This is like, you will raise up Hulk Hogan. No, that's not, that's not right. <laughs> Because uh, he, I, well, he's probably actually strong. Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Back in the day when he was stronger than he is now. Although I think he's working out again. So, uh, so he's just like the model example of a strong nation. It would be Nimrod, right? There's this mighty man from, from days of old. And thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land, when he treads within our borders. So notice here, who's actually going to overcome the conquest of Assyria and deliver the people back? The weak men. 
Well, well, yes, ultimately Babylon overcomes Assyria, and then God delivers his people from Babylon. But how is he, how is he going to um, raise, raise up, I mean, these seven shepherds and eight princely men who are going to overcome Assyria, the land of Assyria, that would be Babylon, wouldn't it? So maybe, maybe that's weird. That's kind of seven shepherds, eight princely men. I, I don't know how that indicates Babylon. Huh. Uh, but then through it all, verse 7, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. So even though Jacob's going to be scattered about, God is not uh, forsaking him. And I think that's kind of Ron's point when you were talking about the king, right? Yes, they ask for a king, and they don't really need a king, and they really shouldn't have a king. But then God's going to actually use that for their benefit. Um, not necessarily earthly, because they're going to be, have to suffer under evil tyrants. Um, but for the benefit of teaching us um, our need for a different sort of king and a different sort of kingdom, right? Than the kingdoms of this world and the kings of this world. That we need a savior and we need, we need Christ who rules over us with his word and, and gifts. Does that follow? All right. Um, so there shall be a remnant and it's in the midst of many peoples. The remnant is like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, that wait nor wait for the sons of men. So um, how, how does this sound like the remnant's going to come? I mean, does dew, is, is, it, is dew a violent thing? Does it, does it fall, like, like hail, you know? And, no, no, it actually, and it almost just, I mean, the mechanism of it we know scientifically, but in the morning you wake up and there's dew, right? On, on the grass or on the leaf. And it, it's not violent at all, it's actually pretty subtle. And uh, uh, maybe even a little bit mysterious, unless you're super into science. We were talking about sublimation on the way here. To, <laughs> where'd all the snow go? Off the road, you know, at least off the driveway. We didn't put salt on it, so where'd it go? Change state, but anyway, side note. Like showers on the grass that tarry for no man nor wait for the sons of men, which is another aspect of rain and dew, right? Can you control it? Can you tell it what to do, when to rain, when to be dew? No, it's, out, it's outside of your control, right? It's outside of anyone's control. But, right? Yeah, that's true. We talked about uh, the Olympics, didn't we? Yeah. With the, uh, was that silver oxide or something? I can't remember what they put in the clouds to, to seed them, cause the water to come together and fall. Um, now, so I think we talked about Pentecost last week, right? With the gathering of the nations. Is that right? Okay. And uh, one of the statements that, that Jesus makes about, about the the work of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit blows when and where He wills. And we don't know its sound, we don't know where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with the Holy Spirit, right? Which also means then, can you control the Holy Spirit? Can you decide where the Holy Spirit does His work and who He does it upon? No, no. So, you know, like the dew and the rain, the Spirit works to, to gather the remnant of Jacob when and where it pleases him, not when and where it pleases you. This is, of course, a big problem in Jesus' own ministry because here he comes. Of course, he has, it's his Spirit, you know, that's at work when he preaches. Um, but who does he preach to? And where, where do the people, what kind of people does he gather into himself? I mean, think of his disciples. You've got Matthew, he's a tax collector, right? You've got... Uh, let's see, Peter, James, and John, right? So, so you've got the sons of Zebedee and Peter, and they're, they're 
fishermen, uneducated, you know, not really scholarly type. Although we presume that they don't know anything, but to say that they don't know, they seem to know the scriptures actually. So despite being, you know, fishermen, they're they're also regular. It seems to be that they've been to the synagogue. They know their scriptures, right? Um, so maybe that's more like you know, like what we call them blue collar, right? You know, it doesn't say anything about their faith. It just says what their livelihood is. Uh, who else did he gather? Um, Judas, who was pretty adept with money, uh, for better or for worse, right? Like to put his hand in the till, it's John says. Uh, let's see, who else? Do we know anything Philip about the rest of them? Yeah, Philip and Nathaniel. They were also, that was by Galilee. So were they also fisher? fishermen? I don't know if it says, but. I don't know that it says either. Somebody, there's probably a tradition attached to them. So they're not the most, you know, obvious choices to become disciples. But then also, who does Jesus minister to himself along with them? He ministers to the kind of people that the religious leaders of the day really didn't find all that. You know, these aren't the sort of people that can be faithful people because of their their background, their history. You know, <laughs> oh, you know, she's. She's had uh, seven husbands, hint, hint. And, uh, well, how could she have faith? Because for the religious leaders of the day, faithfulness looks like obedience. That's what it means to be faithful, is to be obedient, uh, rather than being trusting in the mercy of God, which is how we would define faith. Trusting in Christ, if you want to just say it simply. So, yeah, not all that. Other tax collectors, we had uh, had Zacchaeus, right? Another tax collector who follows after him. You have um, uh, Nicodemus, right? Who's, uh, is he one of the Sanhedrin? Is that right? I think so. I think he, I mean, he was, uh, he had to keep it secret. John tells us that when he takes, when they take Jesus off the cross, because for fear of all of um, his fellow Scholars, I think it's just, I think it says he's a scribe, is what it says, which would be a Sanhedrin. All right. So Jesus also, his own ministry and, and where the spirit works in his own ministry is not where you'd expect it to be. And so one of the things that's kind of incredible uh, in the church is that we tend to bump into people that you wouldn't expect to be, you know, faithful or regular. Um, where the gospel is preached, you know. So that means the church is generally full of um, broken, you know, lives or broken marriages, um, people struggling with various forms of possession. You know, you might say like alcoholism or, or drug, drug use. And, um, a lot of this happens secretly, unfortunately. I think that's probably the biggest struggle we have as a church is that we're, we still kind of like to believe that like you have to you at least have to put on a good appearance to be in church. Like you can't have a sad face, come in with a smiling face, because everybody's going to greet you, and it's a happy day. Um, you can't be struggling because there's nobody else struggling with that. I'm alone in this, which I would, uh, based off the confessions I've heard, I will tell you that's not true. Because <laughs> um, there's nothing, nothing that you can imagine that I haven't heard in the confession you know, that somebody is struggling with. So, um, so there's actually a great solidarity, and, and it, we... Um, it's not a vulnerability to admit your failures in church. Uh, maybe vulnerable before your neighbor, right? Because you, you're subjecting yourself to their judgment, but not to God's judgment. 
not to God's judgment. You're not vulnerable. God's not going to strike you dead if you reveal to him um, your weakness. Well, anyway, so we're back to these dew and, and showers. That God does this work. He's going to gather the remnant out of the midst of the peoples by his shepherds, or by his shepherd, the one shepherd. Um, and he's going to do it mm, regardless, um, you know, whether we're going along with it or not, right? Because he says, that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men, you know? <laughs> Which, that probably makes us a little bit uncomfortable because it sounds like then um, that the work of this church is somewhat unpredictable. I would say it's completely unpredictable. You know, strategic plans are great to have some plans, like this is what we're going to work at. Um, but what this congregation will look like in, in three to five years is you can only guess. And God willing, it would you know, be pretty incredible. Not something you would have ever guessed. Or maybe it'll be exactly like you would expect. <laughs> you know, uh, German farm families that still are kind of hanging out. Although the, the county isn't really German farm families as much as it used to be. Right, demographically? All right, uh, look at the study guide. Should I ask this question? Um, we've kind of been dancing around it, but maybe get right at it. Verses five and six picture uh, the power of Jerusalem's ruler in the days ahead in terms of the present threat to Israel and Judah. Explain the meaning of the ruler's power. Um, is that an easy question? I understand that question? What is the ruler's power? I think it's that I think it's this thing we've been talking about, right? Where the where the church's enemies are overcome not by the power of this world, but by a different sort of power or strength. Does that make sense? And, I, and again, I think that's all connected to this, referring to them as shepherds. So, you have anything else on that? Any other ideas? I'd like to use the study guide just to kind of make sure we're on track. All right, well, let's move on then. There would be a remnant from Israel that would live among the nations of the world and that would refresh all nations and defend God's people from its foes. Um, well, to answer this next question, actually, I think we need to read more, don't we? He will, what, what will the Lord do to Israel to enable it to carry out this wonderful work? Verses 10 to 15. All right, so maybe before we do that, let's look at verse 8 and we'll come back to the question. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who if he passes through, both treads down and tears to pieces, and none can deliver. Your hand shall be lifted. Did we read that already? Yeah. Your hand shall be lifted up against your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. This picture, I, I think this is a beautiful picture. So you've got the remnant, and it's in the midst of, who is it in the midst of? The remnant of Judah? Or Jacob? Yeah, many peoples. Mine says Gentiles, right? And so this is, um, I would say this corresponds well to what Paul says about being in the world but not of the world, right? Which is exactly what it's like to be the faithful um, Christian, is that you're (laughs) you're not disconnected from this world. This is the world that we live in. And even when you come to church, you're not like stepping out of the world, even though I've heard pastors say that. It's like, you know, and then now you're entering the mission field when you walk out the door. Have you seen those signs? Yeah. yeah. Um, which I think the sentiment's fine, but, but, on the, but it's like the mission field wasn't here. Well, actually it is here too because we're teaching young and old the faith. Um, this is where you want to gather those who are curious or 
um, who want to know more, show me Jesus, you know, that kind of thing. So that's the mission field too. I don't know how helpful that necessarily is. Um, but uh, the, the interesting thing is, is that you, you're like, um, each of you individually, and then all of us corporately as a congregation, we're like, um, I don't know, I don't want to say spies, that sounds negative. But we're, that the, the Lord has planted us in the midst of, of weeds, actually. If you want to use Jesus' picture of weeds, wheat and terror, right? That he's planted us in the midst of, of those who are uh, not faithful, Gentiles, we might say. Um, and, but, he, but how does he describe us here? We're not like, um, they're not like lions and we're just lambs that are going to be devoured by them, which is, I think, how people kind of, especially today with all the cultural shifts that have been happening, we think like the world's going to devour us and, and they're hostile to us, right? If you're, you think about it that way, you know, like all these, today's Life Sunday, so you might think about like the, the government and their um, endorsing of, of, of abortion, for example, you know, as being legal and, and good and right even. Um, that that's, that's set the world up as being hostile to Christians. But that's not the picture that Mike is painting, is it? Who's the lion? The faithful remnant. Yeah, the remnant's the lion and they're the lamb. So it's a really different mindset to say, no, actually, what do we have that they don't have? We have the might and power of God. We have his word, which is a... a two-edged sword, to use a violent image <laughs> um, from the scriptures. Um, but it also, it is, you know, the spirit working through the word is powerful and active and does what, it, what it's been sent to accomplish, which then makes you like kings in a way, right? Or conquering kings. Um, yeah. Just looking ahead to verse 9, mm-hmm. says, your hand will be lifted up and triumph over your enemies. Yeah. So, Oh, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And, but I, I think that's the end of the other interesting thing, too, um, because that's a, uh, grammatically, the, the, uh, the tense there, that's a passive tense, right? Or passive, not tense, um, passive voice, we would say. Tense is like past, past future, perfect. Um, but, um, or present, too, right? But voice, passive, it's not something that you do, but it's something that's done to you or through you, I think we would say. Your hands are lifted up, meaning you can't lift up your hands, but who's going to lift them up? God is, right? And that's looking to be like, um, oh, remember Moses? Uh, Was that through the passing of the Red Sea? Did somebody have to hold his arms up? That was at one of the battles. It was one of the battles. Yeah, I can't remember when it was, but okay, so you find that. You know, because he has to keep his, hand, his staff up, right? So, so what does Aaron do? I think it was, right? He holds Aaron his, Joshua, yeah. yeah, they hold his arms up. Um, and that's what God's doing here. I mean, you don't have the strength to do this, but God does this. He uses you. It's your arm, um, but he uses you. And that, that connects well to what, what you heard back in the beginning of verse 6 or, or 5 even. Um, Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. And who is the he here? This is all the way going back to verse uh, 2 and 3 and 4, right? This shepherd, this great shepherd, the shepherd, if you like. He will deliver us from the Assyrian. That's also passive term, passive voice. So who's the one doing the delivering? Um, God is. Yeah. Oh, I see why the 
break is between verse five minutes. The first part is talking about where Jesus is born. Right. And it's the last part, the first part of verse five, and he will be your peace. Right. And so the rest of this is talking about the destruction that's coming and Jesus is going to be Right, and then so yeah, uh, this is uh, this is an important note actually. Th- uh, thank you, Ron, because uh, I think we've talked or we've alluded to it when we talked about Jesus being the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, right? And that, and that Christ is, you know, He is past, present, and future for you and for all people. You know that He's not, um, He's not bound in this kind of linear sense of time. Uh, but actually, the, the, the way that the prophets, and even Moses sometimes write, they don't always write linear. If you've been, again, using the prayer guide and, and reading the readings this week, um, if you read like through Kings, it'll, it'll tell you what's going to happen, then it goes back and tells you what happened, then it moves forward again, and, and then repeats what it said was going to happen, but now it's happened. And so they don't, they don't, view, they don't view time, the Hebrews don't view time linearly like we do either. Um, I mean, the, the only exception to that, uh, well, they do view it in a sense of linear in terms of like genealogies, and I would say even creation, right? With six six days and on the seventh he rested, um, but they also see time more like a spiral, kind of yeah, like a spiral. Yeah, I like that, um, especially if you read um, like with Hezekiah. I was telling, telling you earlier, if you read about the history of Israel, well. You know, they believed, and then they were, then they went after false gods, and they fell into unbelief, and then they they were captive or they were destroyed, and then, and then they remembered the faith of their fathers, and they returned to faithfulness, and for a time, and then they fell into unbelief, and, they, <laughs> and it's like this secular, really kind of life. Um, I think cyclical or spiral that's helpful too, which then Luther picks up in because he was he was a Hebrew scholar. That's what he did. He did Old Testament. He preached Old Testament. He, he taught Old Testament. Um, and he was well versed in the Psalms, better than uh, than certainly we are, because uh, he prayed them. Um, he would pray them all at least once a week, by memory, which is just how do you memorize 150 Psalms? Well, if you're a monk, that's part of what you do. Yeah, you pray them every day. So, um, but what, what was I saying? Oh, yes. So he knew the Old Testament, and so he picks up on this in the Catechism, which I've referred a number of times here already in preaching and teaching, but that, that the life of, um, of the baptized is one of daily dying and rising, right? In the morning, you rise um, from sleep, quote-unquote, right, uh, with a new day, and then at the end of the day, you, you repent of all the sins that you've done wrong, and you, and you pray that you would rise again the next day. And so there's this de- dying and rising, even in the prayers that Luther gives, uh, which is also then communicating what Paul teaches about um, you know, like that baptism, or yeah, to Titus, right? That baptism is um, rebirth and renewal. Right? So, yeah, so they have more of a cyclical thing. So I think you're right, Ron, is that we look forward to Christ and the shepherd is to come. And then we kind of back up a little bit and say, okay, but there's the conquest. But then he's going to gather the remnant out of that conquest. And so we're kind of doing this back and forth movement in time, if you like. So that's a helpful note. Uh, but right, but remember here uh, that, that the remnant of Jacob in the midst of many peoples will be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, right? That, that goes among flocks of sheep and goes through and just treads and tears down to pieces. So, I mean, it sounds really violent, but, um, but, but the picture there is that, that the conquering force 
um, that will actually that will cut off the, the your enemies that will lift you up against adversaries. One that this force that cannot be overcome, I would say, is the Word of God. Um, so the which is Christ then too, right? Because <laughs> He is the Word, and or also one of His other names is the Lion of Judah, right? Like a lion that goes forth. And I don't know, maybe, that, again, we just think of ourselves as being, of having, you know, as Christians, being in the weaker position as far as our, our line of argumentation and the way that we live and, um, you know, that we trust in this God that we can't see. <laughs> Although we can see and touch and taste and feel him, um, but through faith. But that's only in, in terms of the judgment of this world, not in terms of actually what God has said is accomplished. And uh, if you you know, if you want a defense of this, think of um, all the times that the that the the powers of this world have tried to destroy the Christian church. Like we talked about the Russian example with, with the church in Siberia. Um, you could talk about like under the like under Emperor Nero and, and the Romans and how they you know they put Christians up to die in these colosseums. They even put them, put like animal skins on them. And then send the lions among them, so that the animals thought they were animals to be devoured. And then the interesting note in Acts is that they were singing hymns while the, while being devoured, which is like I just can't even get my head around that. Um, but look, look at what God did. It looked like they were powerless and weak, and that God used that actually to overcome the world um, with faith. And He's still doing that work even today. Yeah. So don't I'm, maybe. Um, I was talking a little bit about evangelism, right? In a way, and it's to say, I don't know about you, but my own kind of like thought process when I'm talking to someone um, <laughs> is that I often find myself in the place of thinking, well, this, like, if I speak of my faith or of Christ or this church or our school, that that they're gonna, that's gonna be weakness, and it's kind, it's kind of a Maybe not powerless, but not that all of a strong word. Or I can't make a compelling argument for being a Christian. Um, that isn't the point. <laughs> Actually, God would just have you speak. And then let the Spirit be the one, like do and like rain, that accomplishes the work regardless of your faith or unfaith in it. <laughs> Does that make sense? So that, what are we going to call that? That's a confidence that's not based on our own strength, but a confidence that's based upon God's promise. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I really don't have anything to be scared of here. And plus your shepherd goes before you. All right, so now we can read 10, 10 to 15. So we can answer our question here. Oh, your enemies shall be cut off. Continue. And in that day declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand. Mm-hmm. And you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your shared images from among you and destroy your cities. In anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Wow. So now... <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot like the Psalms. It's like, wait a minute, something changed. Because <laughs> before you were telling me you're going to lift up my arm and you were gonna, we were going to be like lions among sheep and we were going to devour and, and overcome. And now, 
wait a minute, wait a minute. Now, we're, now you're saying that you're going to cut, cut off my horses, which is a uh, horse is a, we even use this in referring to cars, right? What are horses known for? Horse. Horsepower, right? Yeah, which is referring to how many horses it would take to make the car go that fast, I think, right? <laughs> I don't, how do you compute that? There's, there's got to be some formula they came up with. Yeah, some formula, but who came up with it? Probably the same person who came up with, uh, no, I'm joking. It's probably similar to the person who get, came up with, like, this is what a pound is, or this is what a foot. My foot is the foot. You know, it was probably the king, right? I don't know. Somebody know the history of, of English English measurement? Well, I know it happened in, I, ha- I know it happened in the Middle Ages. Middle Ages, yeah. So it was somebody's foot, <laughs> figured it out, and how they divided it into 12 inches. Why 12 and what is an inch? I don't even know. It's somewhat arbitrary, like languages, too. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, we were talking about horses, yeah. So horses are a sign of, of strength, right? Cutting off their horses means they're going to lose their strength. That doesn't sound like... That doesn't sound like God overcoming enemies. It sounds like God overcoming you. Huh. Right? And throw down all your strongholds, right? So your fortresses, if you like. What else? Drive away all your source, the sorceries out of your hands. And soothsayers, right? Is that what yours says? Soothsayers? Or fortune tellers? Yeah, fortune tellers. Because uh, what's the problem with fortune tellers or fortune telling? Apart from being demonic, really, but what? what's the problem? Who knows the future? Who alone knows the future? God. Yeah. And so if somebody else came, comes along t- saying that they know what's going to happen, who are they speaking in place of? God, yeah. So this is, this is unbelief or idolatry, even. You turn them into an idol when you trust their word more than you trust God's word. I mean, in a sense, then we would say the devil uh, in the garden was the first, first soothsayer, <laughs> fortune teller, right? Oh, when you eat of it, you won't die. You'll just be like God, right? So speaking, twisting God's word, speaking in his place. So, he's get, so um, this shepherd is actually going to do this. He's going to cut off the horses, or the Lord, we would say here, and uh, destroy the chariots and cut off the cities and throw down the strongholds. Um, this is an interesting note in the Bible, too, is that it uh, has a low view of, of city life. And having lived in suburbia, and then having lived in Chicago, uh, not very long, thank God, and now living eh, in the city, kind of, but really not, you know, in a rural community, um, it's just not... I, I, this is not going to make my Chicago friends very happy, but uh, it's, I don't think it's natural to live in the city like that. I mean, you're just one that God gave you land to dwell on and now you're going to live, you know, 20 feet from the next person, you know, where there's only a sidewalk between you, between your, your shotgun houses and the noise, the sounds, the lights, the pollution, the, um, the chaos. I mean, it's almost like chaotic. Um, you can never get away from people. You, you can never get away from people, which is like, well, people are given to you, but... but um, but so is land to care for, right? So I don't know. I mean, I, the the picture, the predominant picture, because God's people, predominantly in the Old Testament anyway, is people of uh, that are that are nomads, that are shepherds, that are farmers, that are you know like think 
Cain versus Abel, right? Abel's a keeper of sheep, and um, Cain, his followers, well, while he was the farmer at first, what, is, what does he end up doing? He and his, and his children, what are they known for, according to Genesis? Do you remember? They're known for their cities. They're known for their metalwork. They're known for their, um, their music, to- music making, which is kind of fun. But they're known for their like tools, you know, the industry, and cities. The kind of things that, that you see, like, you know, in Chicago or Sheboygan or wherever it is. Um, and uh, having been there, I mean, there's like this constant sense of, it's like a drone, you know, like the, not, not the thing that flies overhead, but like the sound where it's just all the time, right? And there's this, this thing sitting on you. And then you go, you go to Random Lake and it's, apart from Cure Foods, which has the, I don't know what they are, compressors or something on the roof that I can hear every once in a while <laughs> when you walk outside or when the neighbors turns on their, their diesel truck. Um, you know, most of the time it's actually like, relatively speaking, extraordinarily quiet and dark as well. Uh, and that's not a bad thing, actually. It's peaceful and whatnot. So why, why did I bring all this up? Oh, soothsayers and Cain and the devil. That's it. The devil was kind of being prophetic. Oh, cutting off the cities. That's what we're talking about. And throwing down the strongholds. Uh, so that's not only picturing, like, where's the big city that was, that was devastated that they were putting their trust in? That would be Babel, right? Which later becomes Babylon as well. That was the location of Babylon. Um, God destroys that city or levels it. It seems like cities have a problem in the Bible anyway. Um, I was pointing this out to Dale, but the back of... See, I took it over to my study. The the back of the old German uh, hymnal, the very last thing in the hymnal. Does anybody know? Don't say it, Dale. What's the very last thing in that hymnal? You're all too young. Too Uh-uh. No, it's actually the account of the destruction of Jerusalem by Josephus. It was in the hymnal. And we said, why is that in the hymnal? Because the tradition uh, was that you would read that on the Sunday that we hear the dis- account, Jesus' pro- prophetic account that Jerusalem will be destroyed, not one stone upon another. And so then uh, C.F.W. Walther, our founder, he paraphrased Josephus. And, and, and that was included in our hymnals all the way up until um, the 1941. Well, until the English hymnals. But in all the German hymnals up to the 1941 English hymnal. Because uh, that's what you read on that Sunday. You could read along. And it's not exactly the most fun thing to hear about. So now that I've told you about it, maybe you'll actually hear it this summer, this coming summer, <laughs> when well, we get to the Sunday. You did read it. I usually, I would read it here in Bible class. I mean, reading it in church is like, you know, when you get to hear about how, they, um, how there's no food and water left, and so then they start devouring one another. It's not exactly the most pleasant thing to hear in church. All right, so why were we talking about all this? Oh, yes, sorceries, images, pillars being carved down. Um, no more worship of the work of your hands, the things that you make. Um, all the things that you put your trust in is basically what he's saying. He's going to execute this vengeance. That is part of him delivering you from the Assyrians. Because, think about this, when the, when the um, foreign force overcomes you, what do you also end up bringing, what do they also end up bringing with them? All the things they trust in, all their false gods, all their false worship, right? And so then, uh, we heard about this earlier this week in the prayer guide. We were hearing about um, how the king of Assyria, which, what was his name? Do you remember? 
I can't remember now. It was on Tuesday, I think we read it. I'm looking at Ethan. It was the king of Assyria that sent, sent some of his own Assyrian people back to Israel to inhabit it. No, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. It was earlier. You'll go find it. It was in 2 Kings, I think, right? Uh, so, so the king of Assyria, after they had conquest, they took the people of Israel out. Then we read in the histories that he sent some people back because you can't leave the land empty, right? Because then others will just come and conquest it. So he sends people back, but he doesn't send Israelites back. He sends people from places I've never heard of. But the, the, writer, of the, king, the writer of Kings, right? I think he tells you that not only did they, they go back, these people, or go to, to inhabit the place, but they brought with them their worship. So then actually tells you how they worship. And the one, I can't remember, they had their gods, and they named the two gods, and the practice of that faith was actually to burn their children on the altar. Right? So that was one of the false worships that were brought, imported back into Israel, into Samaria, specifically. I think it talks about Samaria. Uh, as well as some other false worship. But then, when the, when the people are put back into Assyria, these people are put into Assyria, who were never there in the first place, and they're worshiping their false gods, then, ooh, this is a nice connection. Uh, God sends lions among them to devour them. Maybe that's what this is actually referring to. <laughs> He sends lions among them to devour them, and they're, ter- and, and they're having a pretty bad lion problem. So, so they, they write back to the king, or send messenger back to the king, and say, we're having a big lion problem. Gotta send us a priest, somebody who knows about the gods of this land, and who can teach us to worship that god. Right, but it was actually the foreign people who asked. Right. Or the religious right. person. Yeah, and so then God sends, or no, excuse me, the king of Assyria sends to them a priest from the Israelites to teach them how to worship the true God. And, um, but the writer's careful to note, they worship a true God and they also worship their own gods. And so it was a mixed religion, which, and then there was an editorial note, which pertains into this day, uh, which is true at the time of Jesus even, right? That's what the Samaritans are known for, of having this mixture of true worship, but also all this false worship that's, was native and then also imported through Assyrian uh, conquest. Was that in Second Kings? Uh huh. Yeah, I think Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser was the king, okay, mm-hmm. of Assyria. Yeah, and what are the names of the gods? See if you can find those gods. So, I mean, that was a nice coincidental reading actually to tie us into this book, which I didn't even. I mean, I didn't intend it that way. I didn't plan it that way, because um, I set that schedule before I even knew what we'd be studying in here. But there you go. All right, so now we can look at the... Or did we finish this? We're almost done. Destroy the cities, execute vengeance and anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. All right? So there's always judgment against unbelief. And I think that maybe makes us uncomfortable. Um, But remember, even God's judgment, meaning negative judgment, uh, harsh judgment, if you'd say, or what do you call it? Wrath or vengeance. uh, That's never done to absolutely destroy people forever. Even when he executes his vengeance upon you, it's against the old Adam, it's against the flesh. And it, and it is always then just a call to repentance. That's the point. It's to say, oh, we have done that, right? We have been worshiping whatever the idol flavor of the week is. <laughs> I, I don't know, what is it that you worship more than God? You don't have to tell me out loud. You could tell me privately later if you want. Um, but, but how does God define false worship or idolatry? Well, actually, how does Luther define it in the Catechism, first, first, first Commandment? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, right? 
So it's anything you put your fear, love, or trust in that is above God, above God, right? So you could, you could actually worship your leaders, like make America great again, right? And worship, worship the leader who makes that promise. And you wouldn't say you're worshiping, but if you, rather than pray to God, that God would actually restore and make this nation prosperous, if you, in a sense, are praying to the, to the leader who promises that sort of thing. Or, not to pick on any political party, then we'll go back. Um, uh, the, uh, the previous presidency, uh, his first campaign was, um, what was it, Hope and Change? Is that what it was, the slogan? It was something. Was it, hope? it wasn't Hope for Change, but I think it was Hope and Change. Hope and Change, right? Well, who alone gives hope? Who alone can change? Yeah, see? So, uh, there's a way you could put too much trust in, in your civil ruler. I have a, in this version, a good footnote for this last section of the chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Messianic era, the people of God will not depend on weapons of war and pagan idols. The successes of his people are always achieved by, in, by dependence on him. Right. So, right, so looking away from all the, the ways that um, that this world puts the things it puts its trust in. I mean, this is even true for something as simple or as little as saying, I want to improve my quality of life, right? Maybe like my income or my reputation or whatnot. And so then I'm going to listen to, I'm going to put my trust in uh, Tony Robbins or I'm trying to think of some of these popular kind of motivational speakers. You know, Joyce yeah, Joyce Meyer, uh, who's who's Christian, but actually does motivational speaking. Really, is what that's kind of her her preaching is really. Here's how to improve your life. Um, but I'm going to put my trust in them rather than let God, through His Word and through repentance for the forgiveness of sins, let that be the thing that amends my life, that changes the way I, I view myself. And and also, there's a way of all that. The other problem with saying I'm going to improve my condition is that take, can take you away from simply being content with the condition that you're in, which I think the Bible would say is the, content, is the condition God has put you in, <laughs> right? And so trying to move away from where God has put you uh, can get you into all sorts of pickles. This is why people, uh, you see this with Hollywood especially, but, um, but or at least that's, those are the ones that we hear about. But I think it happens everywhere. Is that, you know, after 30 years of marriage and, and two or three children, then they say, well, I'm no longer content with this, this life, with my spouse, with being a you know, father, and I'm just going to, I'm going to walk away from that and start a new life. You're like, well, now who's the idol in that situation? Right? When he says, what I want is more important than what these people need from me, around me, whom God has given me, we would say theologically. Yeah. You got something else, Ron, you were going to say? No. Okay. So the question is, what would the Lord do to Israel to enable it to carry out its wonderful work? And, and this, again, this is the, uh, <laughs> this is, it sounds hostile, it sounds uh, uh, really terrible, it sounds violent, that he's tearing down and destroying and burning idols and everything we put our trust in that isn't him, right? Cities, um, carved images, sorceries, I don't know what are sorceries anyway. Yeah, that's different than fortune telling. I mean, it's like magic spells, is what we would say, and we we joke about that, you know, with like Harry Potter, you know, that their magic spells don't exist. Um, hmm, the Bible's not so uh, 
that they don't, it doesn't agree with you. You know, that words are powerful and that words, words can enact reality. Uh, if that weren't true, then um, hmm, what about God's word when he says, this is my body, this is my blood? Is it as truly as body and blood? We say it is. Why? Because it's God's word speaking. Words do something. And even twisting God's word to use it for your own purposes will bring about something, but it's not what God intended, which is, maybe that makes us uncomfortable, but it should make us think a little bit about what we say before we speak. I was just going to answer the question that put on paper here, what would God do? Yeah. He would discipline them. Yeah. And, and uh, like a parent disciplines his child. Yeah. That's because of God. Right. Uh, and worse than discipline, he's going to take away from them everything that they love, right? <laughs> uh, that they love and that they actually love more than him. So what is that? Uh, to use the parent analogy, you know. Oh, the, the child who doesn't, you know, doesn't live, you know, for the family, that doesn't care for the family, that doesn't do their chores, isn't, isn't attentive, you know, is always in their room. You know, well, why? Well, maybe it's because they're always on some electronic device. And so what does a parent do? Take away the electronic device, which they trust in, which is actually taking them, drawing them away in an an idolatry sort of sense, away from the people and the family that that God has given them to be a part of. So, yeah, it is a lot like that, but it's even more dramatic than that. Um, Because these are precious. Well, maybe it is like that. These are precious things, you know. And think about it. These wooden images, they're beautiful, you know. These, uh, what do we call them today? Totems? Like totem poles, you know? Let's not destroy them because they're historic artifacts. Never mind. They were made to to idols. (laughs) They are idols uh, and worshipped. So I guess put them in a museum if you want, maybe. Uh, Yeah, so he's going to purge them, really, right? Uh, Because in a way, these things are are robbing from them um, God, actually, and his goodness and mercy because they're trusting in them more than him, or in him alone. So the last question, oh, we're a little over, but we might as well look at it so we can move on to six. Has it ever happened in your life that God has taken away or destroyed something in which you were placing your hope and trust so that you were forced to rely totally on him? What did you discover about God? Hmm. Maybe I have to think about that a little bit. I've seen them. Uh, This might be a little uncomfortable, but I've seen people... Uh, towards the end of life, who actually trust in their life. You know, they're like, if I die, then, then what do I have left? I'm like, faith in God? You're his child? You have eternal life? You know, but the, in that moment, the kind of thought was that God has taken everything away from me. Maybe that's true too, like with a widow, you know, or a widower. He's taken my husband. Maybe children have died. My children have died. Think of Job, though. God takes, God, through the devil, actually takes everything from him. So that he's left with what? Nothing but trusting God. But that's actually what God does for all of us, one way or another. Which is a little devastating, but also uh, encouraging. So We have the children singing, so we better just close. So just a word of blessing. Lord bless you and keep you, and keep you in his word every day. Amen.